Good morning. Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I am Judge Allegra Collins. To my right is Judge Fred Gore. To my left is Judge Julie Flood. We welcome our clerk, Senior Deputy Clerk Edward Sanders. We welcome our marshal today, Officer Remillard. Thank you for being here. We have two cases on the calendar today. Number 23401, the Town of Forest City versus Florence Redevelopment Partners. And then 23419, City of Roanoke Rapids versus Halifax County. We will hear our first case and then we will be in recess for five minutes while the attorneys change. The judges may get off the bench, but we will come back after about five minutes. First, we will hear from the Town of Forest City versus Florence Redevelopment Partners. Would you like to reserve time for a rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor, five minutes would be adequate. Okay. Are you ready to proceed? I am. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is Nancy Litwack and I am here on behalf of the defendant appellant Florence Redevelopment Partners. Your honors, the issues before the court today directly address whether a municipality can enter into a contract, act in furtherance of that contract for several years, and then attempt to avoid its contractual obligations by claiming that the contract is not valid for lack of a periodic certificate and then to claim that it is immune from any liability under the doctrine of governmental immunity, leaving the contracting party with no remedy whatsoever. The decision today will directly implicate the public and private party's ability to contract with a municipality and to rely on the terms, representations, and warranties in a contract that it thought was valid. It also directly implicates a municipality's practical ability to pre-audit a contract for which no monetary amount is specified and which may become due in a later fiscal year for which no budget has yet been established. Your Honor, the appellant, um, we are appealing three different orders. Number one is a May 16, 2022 order denying the appellant's motion for leave to amend to assert additional counterclaims. Number two is a July 29, 2022 order denying a motion for revision and or reconsideration based on newly discovered evidence. And number three, which I will start with today, is the September 12, 2022 order and entry of judgment on the cross motions for summary judgment filed by both parties. There are only a few facts, Your Honor, that I want to jump, Your Honors, that I want to jump into before I start discussing the legal issues, and they all are relevant to each legal issue discussed today. This matter really concerns a purchase contract between my client, the appellant Florence City, uh, Florence Redevelopment Partners, and the appellee, uh, the town of Forest City, North Carolina, regarding the purchase and development of a historic mill located in downtown Forest City. The parties entered into a purchase contract on June 25th, 2019. Uh, that purchase contract is in the record located um, on pages 49 to 62. I will discuss certain of the provisions in, in light of the legal arguments that I make, but for purposes of now, Your Honors, the timeline of performance stretched over months. Uh, there was an inspection period akin to a due diligence period that was to last for 90 days from June 25th, 2019 up until um, September 23rd, 2019 at the latest for argument's sake. By the deadline for that, the appellant was to provide the city 
with a notice of suitability if it wished to proceed with the contract or with the closing on the mill. The contract also contemplated that closing would take place 30 days after the notice of suitability was provided. So stretching that out at the latest then, that would put October 23, 2019, again for argument's sake. The notice of suitability, there is no doubt that it was provided on October 21, 2019, already roughly a month late under the terms of the purchase contract. For argument's sake, then, that would put closing 30 days later at November 21st, 2019. And arguably, at that point, the contract could have been terminated. Or there is terminate. an argument that there was an automatic termination due to the late notice of suitability. Yes, Your Honor. However, for over a year after that, the parties continued to act in furtherance of that purchase contract, working on a development agreement, continuing to perform certain due diligence, and all this time the appellant continued to expend funds in reliance and uh, on the contract still being valid and the party's voluminous conversations going back and forth over those months. However, a year later on November 4th, 2020, the town appellee sent a notice of termination to the appellant citing the failure of certain conditions precedent to closing, not the notice of suitability, that was one year after the notice of suitability was provided and approximately a year and a half after the purchase contract was entered into. There is unequivocal evidence in this case, Your Honors, that there was no specific closing date specified or a date by which financing had to be obtained and there is no doubt that the parties were working toward closing, working on um, the terms and negotiations of a development agreement and the conditions precedent to closing up until that date of termination. I'd like to turn to the issue of the pre-audit certificate first, Your Honors. The issue here is whether or not a pre-audit certificate was required for the purchase contract. And if it was, then arguably the purchase contract was not valid. If it was not, then there is no other reason the town has put forth as to why that purchase contract is not valid. Can I step back for one moment? So yeah. you said that the contract doesn't contain a closing date. Arguably it contains a closing date after the 90 days of the initial period yes. and then the 30 days after the 90 days. Yes. So arguably there was a closing date. There was a contemplation for a timeline for closing, but there was no specified date by which closing had to occur. Okay. But yes, there was a 30-day inspection period. At some point during there, a notice of suitability was to be provided. 90-day, correct. 90-day inspection. Correct, period. I'm sorry. Right. And then after the notice of suitability was provided, closing was contemplated to occur within 30 days after that. But that could have taken place on any date therein. There was no specified date for closing. Okay, but date by? that 120-day period, correct? Yes, if you're using a timeline, okay. yes, Your Honor. And then a time is of the essence clause, yes, which Your would Honor. put it at a reasonable time within that 100-day There was a time is of the essence clause, Your Honor, and for purposes set forth in our brief, and I'm happy to go into that argument now if you would like, it is our contention that that time is of the essence clause, as well as any specified timeline for closing, was waived unequivocally by the party's actions. Okay, I didn't mean to derail you. Go back to where you were going. Okay, you, okay. Yes. I will go to the pre-audit and I will definitely address those, Your Honor. So we contend that a pre-audit certificate was not required because no financial obligation was going to become due or paid within the same fiscal year that the contract was entered into. We also contend 
that a pre-audit certificate was not required because the amounts that were supposed to be paid were not specified or definite. Presumably any purported financial obligation was not coming out of the budget. And by signing the purchase contract, which contains reps and warranties regarding the validity and legality of the purchase contract, the town has conceded that no pre-audit was required. Can you, is there any argument that, that this pre-audit requirement refers to the calendar year and not the fiscal year? There is no argument in the case law, Your Honor. The case law is very clear that North Carolina General Statute 159-28A only requires a pre-audit certificate if the town is actually going to pay out a sum of money within the same fiscal year that that contract is signed. Um, and of course, the point, and I understand it, is to keep tabs on whether or not a municipality actually has the funds in its budget, the taxpayer's money, to pay that money out. Um, the town manager at the time of the purchase contract testified that a lawnmower purchase might be an example of an invoice that would have to be stamped with that pre-audit certificate. The financial obligations, though, that the town has said required a pre-audit certificate are twofold. Number one, paragraph seven in the purchase contract, which specifies certain closing costs. And what's important here is that there is no specified amount in paragraph seven. It merely states that the seller, the town, shall pay any, any, if at all, grantor's taxes, the cost of preparation of the deed, the cost of satisfaction of liens, attorney's fees, and other expenses. Again, no specified amount, and not only that, Your Honors, but there was no guarantee that closing was, in fact, going to occur. It might as well have been that, the, that Florence Redevelopment would not issue a notice of suitability and decide not to move forward to closing. Paragraph 16A is the other financial obligation in the purchase contract, and that was merely an option for the town to repurchase the property two years after closing, whenever closing occurred, if it's so desired and if certain um, items had not been met. So is the, is the purpose of this pre-order certificate to ensure that any potential? No. So in Myers v. Town of Plymouth, which I think is the seminal case here, Your Honors, that is a 1999 case under the Court of Appeals. Uh, in that case, the town manager sued a city for severance benefits and a severance package after it was terminated from the city's employ. The contract there was entered into on April 14, 1997. Like in this case, the fiscal year, and there's unequivocal testimony in this case, that the fiscal year for the town ended on June 30th. In Myers v. Town of Plymouth, that was the same case. The town, though, in Myers v. Town of Plymouth, had the option to terminate the town manager upon 30 days notice. So there was a possibility that the town manager could have been um, could have been terminated within the same fiscal year as when that employment contract was entered into. Yet he was not terminated until just under a year later. And the Myers v. Town of Plymouth Court really went into this, Your Honors. They said that the pre-audit certificate is only required when a town will have to satisfy an obligation in the fiscal year in which the contract is formed. Council, My, on, yes. on that issue as far as the same fiscal year, isn't also, one of the, I guess, requirements is to help identify the dollar amount. And with that said, even though there was no sp specific dollar amount, isn't it easily, arguably, identifiably in the you know purchase agreement that the terms show what items would be included so they could total that amount? Um, Your Honor, I don't know. And there hasn't been much evidence to that fact. But I will tell you that during the depositions, the... John Condry, who was the town manager at the time that this was entered into, 
testify that at the very least they would need an estimate of amount of an amount in order to do a pre-audit certificate. And I'm sorry, I misspoke. During the deposition, both the town 30B6 and Mr. Condry, the former town manager, testified and denied that they had any estimates or ideas of the amounts of the closing costs, taxes, et cetera, as set out in paragraph seven. I guess my question is, you see what items are included in the purchase agreement. Sure. They could go get those estimates and have that dollar amount. Could they come and add any other items after the purchase agreement had already been agreed to? Your Honor, because the purchase agreement says et cetera in paragraph seven, I would argue that there could be additional items in there. And, and on that note, Your Honor, I'll jump ahead and then come back a little bit, but that is one of the issues is that the whole point of the pre-audit certificate is, again, for a town to make sure it has money in its budget for that fiscal year. In this case, we did not have an amount. We had an et cetera that could have added a different amount. And the fiscal year ended five days after the purchase contract was entered into. The budget for the following fiscal year had not yet been established. So there's just no way a municipality in that way could pre-audit this and say, you're right, for the budget of when this is going to become due, we have that money in. And theoretically, it's the budget for the next year that it would include these funds. Exactly. And it makes sense, really, Your Honors, for a, for example, I've said this before in our arguments that we've now made many times, but if the closing statement or the reconciliation statement on the closing date where it has those columns of who owes what, that, sure, that might need to have a pre-audit certificate. It has a specified amount in there. It's getting paid that day. It's signed by the parties. And that is my argument in terms of what would need a pre-audit certificate under the term of the statute, as well as the case law that has interpreted it. Um, and again, Meyer's saying that a contract that is signed in one year but results in a financial obligation in the next year does not violate the pre-audit certificate statute. And in going back, Judge Collins, to your question, the Meyer's court explicitly stated, we will not invalidate the contract due to its lack of a pre-audit certificate when the mere possibility of an expense in the first year never in fact resulted in an obligation. Again, that town manager in Myers could have been terminated within the same fiscal year. He was not, but even if he could have been, it was not required because it never in fact became due. Can we talk about um, what conditions precedent um, the trial court granted summary judgment on? Your Honor, um, I'm not exactly sure. There are conditions precedent in the purchase contract that discuss um, parking, easement, a development agreement, and the development agreement has really kind of been the hinge in this lawsuit because the parties were discussing certain, and that would include utilities, parking, easements, et cetera. The parties, there is no doubt, were working toward that development agreement. In fact, the town had hired a third-party consultant to come in and help facilitate that, and the town was drafting it. And, and a few months before the notice of termination was sent, drafts were still being sent back and forth at that point. Um, so, so in our position, closing was not yet to occur until those conditions precedent were um, finalized, and, the t and they were working in good faith toward that the entire time. Um, Your Honor, that actually, and, and I'll jump quickly as well, that is the second action filed by the town appellee is that the automatic termination occurred when the notice of suitability was not provided by that September 23rd, 2019 date. But Your Honors, the law in North Carolina is extremely clear that conditions of a contract can be waived even if there is a time is of the essence contained in the contract. And the case that we've cited in our briefs, Your Honor, 
is 42 East LLC v. D.R. Horton. It is a 2012 case that is directly on point. The facts discuss the purchase of a piece of land. There were conditions to closing in 42 East. There was an inspection period. There was a notice of suitability that was required, and there was going to be automatic termination if that notice of suitability was not provided as set out in the contract in 42 East, again, on point with our case. In 42 East, the issue was whether parties can waive provisions by subsequent conduct where the contract has not only a no waiver provision, but also a, fail uh, and a failure to enforce provision, but also a time is of the essence clause. And the court found that a non-waiver clause does not preclude waiver of provisions in a contract. And then citing to Phoenix Limited Partnership, a 2009 case also discussed in our brief, the 42 East Court found that the defendants did not insist on a specified closing date, but made statements and took actions manifesting an intent that closing should occur at some later unspecified date. That is, again, precisely what we have here as briefed um, before the courts. And that because the defendants acted in that manner, they dispensed with their right to insist on certain provisions. I like this quote, and so I've taken it from 42 East, but I think it applies here. The court said, these undisputed facts demonstrating that defendants not only ever insisted on closing on, a, on the specified closing date in the contract, but made statements and took actions manifesting an intent that closing should occur at some unspecified later date, establish that defendants waived the time is of the essence clause. The undisputed facts established conduct that naturally would lead plaintiff to believe that defendants had dispensed with their right to insist that time was of the essence with respect to closing. And again, summary judgment in 42 East was granted. It said that the undisputed facts established a question of law as to waiver. And we think that the undisputed facts in this case, um, as a matter of law, have established that waiver occurred because, again, the automatic termination, therefore, should have occurred on or around September 23rd, 2019, when the notice of suitability was not provided, and yet they went on until November 4th, 2020. But wasn't, wasn't one of these triggering events that, that I think you said that you can't get financing? You couldn't get a HUD loan and you couldn't get financing within six months? So there is some dispute. So the, the appellant was working to obtain a HUD loan. They decided that instead of going the HUD route, because that would have ta taken longer to get to closing, they were going to secure private financing. They had someone, that the evidence shows they had someone on board, were exploring that, um, and were going to move forward with that financing option instead. But there was no requirement that they use HUD financing. And so again, I believe the unequivocal evidence shows that all of the parties were still working in good faith, and were almost at a final development agreement ready for signature. Okay, so is there any timeline, any, any sort of reasonableness standard that we have to apply to determine whether financing was timely? Sure, I, sure Your Honor. I'm not going to say that this was an indefinite. Um, I don't, the, the perpetuity argument that Apelli advances in its brief I don't think applies. We're not necessarily asking the court to hold that you should indefinitely hold open a contract. Um, wh what we're asking the court to hold is that in this specific case, the parties, again, were working in good faith towards this. There again, the plaintiffs have not, have not moved for summary judgment on that issue, Your Honor. The summary judgment that was before the court 
was on their second cause of action, which specifically was a de declaratory request that the late notice of suitability automatically terminate the purchase contract. That's the issue in summary judgment, and that did not occur. Um, I think the reasonableness, that could be an argument that goes later, later in the day, but that was not um, an issue on summary judgment, except potentially an implication. But again, the explicit issue was whether or not the contract automatically terminated due to the late notice of suitability. Um, and that's where we believe waiver unequivocally existed in light of the fact that the parties continued working for over a year together on that. Um, Can you walk me through um, the argument of sovereign immunity? Yes, um, governmental immunity, Your Honor, and this and this comes into play specifically after the pre-audit certificate. I'm happy to answer any other questions regarding the pre-audit certificate. I think our brief does a great job in explaining the case law requiring the actual money to come due within the same fiscal year. We've cited to Myers, to Davis, um, we've cited to M-Series, and, and I just don't think there's any doubt that the fiscal year ended five days after the contract. Can you address uh, part of the opposite side's argument that, that allowing this within the five days, some sort of contract within the five days prior to the end of the fiscal year is going to create some kind of floodgate opening? Yeah, I, I see their point, Your Honor, but again, they chose to enter into a contract on June 25th knowing that their fiscal year ended on June 30th. And again, they cannot pre-audit stamp that without knowing the budget and without knowing the specified cost or the timeline or if the costs were even going to come into play. Again, neither of the costs that the town relies on were necessarily going to even be incurred let alone not within the same fiscal year. And so if the town wants to not enter into a contract <laughs> with five days, then the town's a sophisticated party and can have the contract start on July 1st, the next fiscal year, if it's so desired. Um, but the truth of the matter is the town entered into a contract, chose to voluntarily within five days of the end of its fiscal year, did not pre-audit it, signed a contract that said all reps warranties therein were true, that the contract was valid under the law, that it had no violation of any law. These are all the reps and warranties, and they're contained in paragraphs 13 and 18 of the purchase contract. Um, so, so while I see the issue there, again, I think for that reason, then, the town should be looking at when it enters into its contracts. Governmental immunity, Your Honors. Um, the big point here, in my opinion, is because a pre-audit certificate is not required, a valid contract exists. That is the only reason they claim that contract is not valid, is the pre-audit certificate. That is not required under the case law. So because there is a valid contract then, the town has waived governmental immunity under one of the three ways that a municipality can waive governmental immunity. Valid contract is one of them. Uh, we cite to Smith v. State and Ray v. City of Greensboro that again, entering into a valid contract is an implicit consent to be sued for damages. Um, here, Your Honor, as such, that ends the inquiry. Secondarily, though, we believe that this is a proprietary versus governmental capacity. Um, that is another reason for which governmental immunity has been waived by the town. But were we to agree on the pre-audit certificate issue, then we do not reach that, or we correct. do not, correct? Correct, Your Honor. Governmental immunity is waived with a valid contract. 
end of inquiry. And for the reasons set forth in our brief, Your Honor, which I will rest on just for purposes of time, um, again, we believe that at the very least, secondarily, there was proprietary actions here. It was a sale of a piece of land for a profit that only incidentally promotes the benefit or welfare of the health, safety, security, or welfare of the public. The courts in North Carolina realizing that almost anything a government does is going to incidentally touch on that, and that does not make it a governmental function. This is a sale of private land to a private developer. Um, so again, for those two reasons, governmental immunity has been waived, but as Your Honors noted, um, the valid contract will end the inquiry. I've spoken about credit certificate and I've spoken about governmental immunity, which addresses our counterclaims. I've also spoken a little bit about the automatic termination, and again, the argument at summary judgment being that the notice of suitability automatically terminated the purchase contract, not a reasonableness argument. Alternatively, Your Honors, and I will briefly touch on this, if the court were to find that a pre-audit certificate were somehow required, we had moved for leave to amend to assert additional counterclaims for fraud and negligent misrepresentation. We moved for a revision of that after taking discovery um, and depositions where the town manager at the time of the purchase contract was signed, testified, and 30B6 town testified. They do not know what was done to verify whether the reps and warranties that the town was signing in the contract were in fact true. Uh, at the very least, we believe this gives rise to a negligent misrepresentation claim in the signing of that purchase contract if they're now going to claim it's invalid for failure to follow the law when the reps and warranties say they were following the law. Um, again, this would only come into play if a pre-audit certificate were found to be required, in which case we would ask that our negligent misrepresentation claim at the very least be allowed to proceed. There was no showing of material prejudice, which is one of the two ways that an amendment should not be freely given in North Carolina. We were already defending, they were already defending certain counterclaims, and the circumstances surrounding the execution of the purchase contract were heavily questioned at depositions. And finally, um, the futility argument that the town argued in, in response to our request to assert additional counterclaims was based on governmental immunity, again, with a valid contract um, or with proprietary government. We believe that that has been waived. Um, and, I, and in closing, Your Honors, because I'm about to get into my rebuttal time, I just want to clarify what we're asking for. Um, the town has three causes of actions in its complaint. One for breach of contract, one for, uh, and they're all declaratory actions, one for breach of contract, one for automatic termination due to a late notice of suitability, and one for lack of a contract due to the pre-audit certificate. We are asking this court reverse the trial court and find summary judgment in favor of the appellant onto the pre-audit certificate issue and as to the automatic termination issue. I think I've argued those and they're well briefed um, in our documents we've submitted to the court. On the breach of contract issue, starting on page 28 of our brief, I talk about how that also fails as a matter of law based on unequivocal evidence. So we would also ask that summary judgment on the first claim for relief be granted in our favor. As to the governmental immunity, which addresses our counterclaims for the reasons I've set forth already on governmental immunity, we believe that the trial court should be reversed on that and our counterclaims allowed to proceed. Based on our briefing as well, we think we've satisfied and shown the evidence on those counterclaims. So we would ask your honors that we only proceed to trial on a matter of damages. Um, but uh, barring any other questions, I would like to reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you.
Good morning, may it please the court. Daniel Peterson for the town of Forest City. Um, in this case, the court, the trial court, granted summary judgment to the town, um, and that's the disposition that we're going to address first today. And this case is about a contract contemplating cascading deadlines between a North Carolina municipality and a Virginia-based developer wherein the developer never followed through on, among other things, securing financing and missing other deadlines throughout, um, throughout the contractually contemplated process, such that it now purports, despite council opposite's representation to the otherwise and concession otherwise, it now purports to trap Forest City in an interminable contract um, for a vital governmental interest in redeveloping its downtown. Town should not be punished for trying to salvage a course of action in re redeveloping in that governmental function, that very basic governmental function of keeping its, its town free of blight um, in an effort to try to make a contract with a party work, particularly where there are, as there were here, expiring tax credits that the defendant knew about this entire time and made representations that they could complete this project in 22 months. Beginning in 2018, the town, in an effort to revitalize the downtown, um, so as to take advantage of these tax credits that I've mentioned, including the North Carolina Historic Mill Rehabilitation Tax Credit, the North Carolina Industrial Tax Credit, and other credits, um, solicited proposals from developers to which we the town had three responses to. The defendant represented that it can complete the, the redevelopment of the Florence Mill property in 22 months, and this never happened. The contract entered into, um, as was discussed some in council opposite's argument, but I'd like to walk through it very, to, to frame what we believe the issues are here. Um, the contract was entered into with an effective date, June 25th, 2019. That was five days before the fiscal year in this case ended. But as I'll talk about briefly, this case is not like your typical pre-audit certificate case, um, which Judge, Judge Gore actually had kind of alluded to the ascertainability of some of the expenses um, from cascading deadlines. From the effective date of the contract, June 25th, 2019, we see on record page 52, there was a 90-day inspection period for environmental studies, market studies, and appraisal, and, and purportedly, from the defendant, some evidence of financing. The defendant did not recall in their deposition testimony if any inspections were ever communicated to the town, the, uh, any issues in those inspections during that inspection period. That would have made the notice of suitability under paragraph 10C of the contract due September 23, 2019. Then, and that, as I'll discuss in a little while, that never happened either. 30 days countdown to closing from September 23rd, 2019 to October 23rd, 2019, wherein in paragraph six, record page 50 of the contract, um, the closing was to take place. And just so that I'm clear, the notice of suitability was not delivered according to the contract, but the town asked the developer for it, am I correct? Yes, Your Honor. And then it was delivered approximately a month later. Uh, there was a there was a kind of re non-responsive response from the developer, and then eventually 
a month in more a month and a half or so later, I believe it was um, delivered in November 2019 in an undated document, which we had to develop through deposition testimony when it was even delivered. And no, no notice of termination was sent at that point, correct? No, it was not, Your Honor. Um, but we contend that the notice of termination was it was for other kind of defaults contemplated in the contract, wherein this specific. Um, notice of suitability requirement specifically indicated an automatic termination um, of the contractual rights um, between the parties. So the notice of termination, it's, you're saying it was not based solely or even wholly on this lack of suitability notice, correct? Yes, Your Honor. And, and did you give the developer 30 days to cure? Was there a requirement under your contract that you do that? For the notice of termination, mm -hmm. yes, but as to, again, the notice of suitability, um, failure to, to provide that, that we, we contend was an automatic termination, that there was no contractual obligation for the town to allow them to cure that. Um, okay, but I guess I'm confused because you're telling me that the notice that you're saying that the contract terminated that was sent a year after all of this, correct? Yes, Your Honor. Was based on the notice of suitability being late or other conditions preceding not being met? Other conditions preceding not being met, okay. including financing. Okay, and at that, what, did that notice contain a 30-day period for in which they could? I, I believe so, Your Honor. Okay. Yes, Your Honor, thank you. Um, and so at that point, as I'll, I'll, I'll talk about in, in a little bit, the notice of suitability um, requirement would have automatically terminated the contract. But stepping back to the pre-audit certificate argument. So the town moved for summary judgment on its claims in regard to the lack of a pre-audit certificate and as to the automatic termination um, provision in the notice of suitability, either of which, um, if the court agrees with the town, would resolve this matter in favor, resolve its claims in favor of the town. Um, not and the summary judgment order to be clear does not discern between those arguments so that's why we're having this discussion we're having today about both of these but it does not require the court to agree with both contentions um, relating to the pre-audit certificate and the termination the automatic termination for the lack of uh, notice of suitability the, the statute regarding pre-audit certificates um, I mentioned earlier that this wasn't the typical sort of pre-audit case where the, the obligation, and when I say that, it's because the obligation did not become incurred the date the, the contract was signed. And that's really what the, the Town of Plymouth case is, is assuming happened. And, but under 159-28A, there is not a reference to when the contract is signed, but rather when the obligation may be incurred. And it says no obligation may be incurred in a program, function, or activity, and goes on um, to require this certificate sufficient to pay to show that there is in the budget an amount sufficient to pay in the current fiscal year the same obligation by the transaction for the current fiscal year. So it's your argument that you incur it the day you sign the contract, regardless of when you have to pay it. Is that the crux of your argument? The crux of my argument is that in, in this case, it was incurred actually when the notice of suitability would have come due. 
that's when the cascading deadline would have, have instigated the closing date, which is what we were, what, which is what um, Your Honor Judge Gore referenced with counsel opposite of there being a readily ascertainable amount. There is a list of things that the town could ascertain. Um, to hold, um, to uh, the, the, the trial court rather, um, again, in granting summary judgment, the dot discern between the two, but the two arguments, but with regard to the pre-audit certificate argument, this would honor the General Assembly's intent in making sure to avoid the kind of five-day situation where you've got some sort of moral hazard, if you will, even, or frustrating the intent of the legislature, where parties, including municipalities, but also private parties, could engage in signing contracts on the eve of a, the expiration of a fiscal year and not have to um, have furnished the pre-audit certificate simply because it came due on, say, July 1st. Well, what is, isn't it, isn't it in the, the party's best interest contracting with the town to ensure that there's money actually in the town's budget for this? Is this really some sort of floodgate that would open and everybody's rushing to sign a contract with you? Well, I think that, Your Honor, it's, it would be, it just removes an impediment at that point. Um, I think that is, that's, that is a fair um, rebuttal point, Your Honor, to be frank. Um, but nonetheless, the, the, the goal of the legislature was to make sure that these these programs would be funded, and that is why um, a pre this pre-audit certificate statute has existed and, and frankly has created some some harsh results in the case law over the years. Um, we're not asking for that har harsh result here today, Your Honor. In fact, again, as as I'm about to talk about, um, the the town worked with. Um, the defendant to try to salvage this this um, this deal, this contract, um, this performance, so it could have its downtown revitalized, and it should not be punished for doing so. Um, what we are asking, simply with the pre-audit certificate issue, is that the fact that it did not happen is is an, an off-ramp for the town at this point to say this is an internal contract. You're not honoring the side of your contract, and oh by the way because there was a closing date contemplated that, again, never happened because of the defendant's conduct, um, this, this requirement, as it turns out, was, um, was something that needed to be done. But, but really turning to the notice of suitability argument, again, um, in, in, this, in this case, it's not like the other kind of breaches that are contemplated in the contract. It is an automatic termination of the contract. And in record page 835 um, is, as I, I mentioned before, the, the deposition testimony where we had to establish when the actual notice of suitability was turned in, um, it, almost a full two months after it was due. And again, not only was that just not turned in, but then the closing never happens. The closing never happens 30 days even after the notice of suitability occurs. And I want to talk a little bit, respond to some of the arguments about the waiver, particularly the 42 East case. Um, 42 East is not exactly like our case, um, Your Honors. It is, it is not involved in municipality, and that's going to be important because a town can only act through its board, and that's why our provision in our contract um, that refers to the parties requiring a written amendment to to amend the contract, a, an amendment in writing, not an implied amendment, is so imperative. And there never was that writing. 
We talked about that it's, in the, it's within the deposition testimony of, of the defendants. It is there is never an established amendment to the contract. And that's because these tax, and, that, and the other factor here with, that distinguishes us from 42 East is this just wasn't, as counsel opposite indicated, some sort of just private land tra transaction. This was a redevelopment, a governmental function, which I'll talk about in a bit, where the defendant knew a priority for the town was securing tax credits for the redevelopment of its downtown area that were expiring. There was a very, it was not just a general time is of the essence as we so often see in purchase contracts for real estate. There was a specific reason that one, the time was of the essence, that there was requirement for amendment of the contract in writing, and two, that there, that there was, that, that the town notwithstanding that tried to make this work for a year afterwards. And what we had, what, what was sort of discussed and sort of some implication by, by council opposite was we still did not have financing established. There was, and the, that contention is that really, you know, they, well, Whenever we get, whenever we get financing, again, this this sort of implication that there is going to be this interminable um, contract that the town is stuck in, um, while representations were made by the defendant at the front end of this to the town council in an open meeting that this could be done in 22 months, and here we were, about that time range into those discussions into the contract, and financing had not even been secured. Thus, waiver could not have happened. Towns should not be punished simply for trying to make a governmental function work with the contracting party. So your contention is that 42 East LLC doesn't apply or at least isn't controlling here because you have different kinds of parties? Yes, Your Honor, it is. Specifically, the fact that this is a municipality um, that is limited in its authority and um, powers under ch Chapter 160A. Um, and, and, and you would agree that 42 East does say that a, a, a clause that says a waiver must be in writing can also be waived, correct? I agree with that, Your Honor. However, and again, this is, we're talking about a municipality that can only act through its town council and is only granted the authorities, um, its authority through the General Assembly, through the passage of those statutes and its town charter. Um, and so that is the distinguishing factor here between 42 East which then the nature of my client, the town of Forest City being a municipality, brings us to the governmental immunity unless the court has further questions about either the pre-audit certificate or the notice of suitability. I'm glad to take them. Um, but the, the governmental immunity has kind of two paths here. One addresses the counterclaims brought by the defendant and the other I'll address with the motion for leave to amend. They're a little different. They're not so conflated um, that they can be covered just in kind of one breath. Um, but as to the counterclaims, as I've said throughout my argument today, and, I, and of course I hope the court agrees, is that this was fundamentally a governmental function that the town was engaged in with the defendant. And the authority for that is Mike v. City of Gastonia, cited in our briefing, which studied extensively the General Assembly's um, 
structure of 160A-501 and subsequent statutes relating to removal of blight, redevelopment, and revitalization being governmental functions for a municipality to engage in. It's, it is, so thus, the, the test to determine whether a municipality is acting as a governmental or propriety, proprietary capacity is not solely based on, as, as the defendant would have it, based on whether a municipality either even sought to make a profit or was making you know, money in this purchase agreement situation. It's whether the undertaking, the purpose of the undertaking rather, was chiefly for the welfare of the larger community or, or alternatively whether it was chiefly for private advantage. The record establishes here, Your Honors, um, from both parties that both parties considered themselves engaging in a redevelopment um, project. In fact, not to be flip about it, but even the, plain, the excuse me, the defendant's chosen LLC for this in the case caption refers to um, redevelopment. So the, and to provide specific record sites, um, Mr. Khan, one of the principals of the defendant at record page 923-924, um, talked extensively about what, the, what he understood the town's plans for were for its downtown in connection with Florence Mill. Um, at record pages 611 and 612, um, the former town manager testified that this was a rehabilitation of a pro property within a larger public sphere. And um, the town man the, a subsequent town manager for the town testified at record pages 414 and 415, and then again at record page 487 regarding this issue, stating that this was about revitalizing downtown on record page 414, and that on record page 487, it was, they needed to make sure that it was done in a way that would benefit the downtown area for revitalization and for the citizens. That was the standpoint of the town in which it was engaged in its discussions. And frankly, going back to the waiver argument, why it's so, one of the reasons it so desperately wanted to salvage this relationship until it became apparent that defendant was not going to secure financing. Thus, as to the counterclaims, as to the counterclaims, and I will agree that if the court disagrees with the town's argument that there was a, that there was no valid contract, that at least that claim, a, a breach of contract claim can proceed, but that, the, that any other claim sounding in tort, including the breach of covenant and good faith counterclaim brought and the unjust enrichment claim brought are, um, are, are um, the, the governmental immunity applies and there is an absolute defense to that. Um, the, in addition, and now kind of phasing into that second pathway as to the motion um, for leave to amend, but also within sort of the counterclaims um, after the breach of contract, um, it's the fact over whether these claims do sound in tort or in contract. The existence of a valid contract, of course, cannot, cannot control tort claim, wh whether a tort claim survives governmental immunity. And in this case, there has been no um, allegation that the town has otherwise waived governmental immunity except for through this putative contract. Thus, any claim, regardless of whether the court agrees with the town's argument as to the validity of the, the contract, any claim 
that sounds in tort, including, again, the breach of covenant in good faith, the unjust enrichment counterclaims, and all of the fraud and, its, and other claims brought in the motion for leave to amend simply are not actionable against the town under this, under this governmental versus proprietary um, capacity argument that I've walked through already. Um, because as an, in a case, an unpublished case, I admit, but the only one on, on point, Best v. County of Cumberland, um, the court commented that claims for the breach and covenant of good faith and fair dealing um, are subject to governmental immunity. And in M-Series Rebuild, which is cited by both parties in their briefing, um, the, and, data, and in data general in the kind of context of the, um, uh, excuse me, the pre-audit certificate cases where there is often an unjust enrichment claim brought as an alternative, those claims are also, notwithstanding the pre-audit certificate issue, um, subject to the application of governmental immunity. And, and, and thus, the kind of first study is whether it is a claim in contract, a duty arising out of a putative contract, or a claim arising under tort. And if it is a claim, if it is a claim arising out of the contract, that is when the court will address the pre-audit certificate um, contentions and the notice of suitability contentions um, in relation to whether that formed a, a valid contract, but as to any other claim, the tortious, um, the, the claims grounded in tort, rather, and that is both in counterclaims and the motion for leave to amend, those are all um, claims in tort, and therefore, because this was a governmental function, governmental immunity must apply. Um, I, I know I've got some balance of time left, but those were my prepared remarks, and I'm glad to answer any questions the court may have. Council, um, assuming argument's sake that they get to it, walk back through one more time as far as the, the town's town not waiving governmental immunity for for the court. Yes, Your Honor, it's um, not waiving governmental immunity. Um, the, 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 the town can waive governmental immunity in a few ways, one of them being through the purchase of liability insurance. That's not a contention here. Um, the other being through resolution under 160, uh, I'm somewhat operating off of memory, but I think it's actually 145. It's in Chapter 145, but that, that's kind of a bigger city situation um, where the town can pass a resolution waiving governmental immunity up to a million dollars. Um, which would not apply here. And then there is whether there is a valid, whether they've entered into a contract to kind of avoid the result of towns um, entering into contracts and then there being a dispute and the town saying, governmental immunity, I win. Um, and that, that's what the, the own, that's, that's the sole contention here um, by the defendant that, that governmental immunity has been waived. That's the only thing that has been discussed in the briefing it's whether there is a valid contract. And then, um, oh, and excuse me, there, the, the final way, kind of as a secondary way, is um, if it is engaged in a proprietary function um, versus a governmental function. And that's where we kind of go into this study over whether revitalization and redevelopment of the downtown area is a governmental capacity or as defendant would have it, it, is, it, this was simply a private transaction 
of land, and that was it. Um, and that goes to um, whether governmental immunity has been waived as well, because under a proprietary function, cities are trying to, are engaging almost as a private entity, trying to make money, um, though there are some exceptions to that, like a water utility, I think that's kind of a, an interesting exception to the governmental versus proprietary capacity um, study. Well, their argument is that there's not gonna be a present by the town in the mill and in the continuing ongoing activity, so walk, walk me through that. Oh, thank you, Your Honor. I'm sorry if I was kind of spinning out a little bit on that. Um, the that that argument is not is is not real. It's kind of a red herring to some extent, in that the Mike v. City of Gastonia case doesn't address whether the city will have a presence in a a building where there's redevelopment for, in the downtown going on. It's rather that the redevelopment and revitalization efforts itself are a governmental function. And that's where the study of 160A-501 in Mike is important because it, it gives evidence to the fact that the General Assembly's findings were that it's a governmental function. So it's not so much whether the town has some, is leasing some space or is involved in, in, in some sort of ownership capacity, as was the case in the, in the Mike case. The city did own that property as happenstance, but that was not the reason that the governmental versus proprietary capacity study landed on it being a governmental capacity. It, rather, it was because these were, this was a revitalization and redevelopment effort um, spearheaded by the city as it was in, uh, as the town of Forest City was endeavoring to do with this project and as the deposition testimony developed again through um, record page 611, 612, former town manager saying it was a rehabilitation of a property within a larger public sphere, and then the current town manager saying done in a way that would benefit the downtown area for revitalization and for the citizens. It was from that standpoint, and that was from record page 487. That's what was crucial for the, for the town here, and that's why it was a governmental immunity not what, whether, that's why governmental, it, governmental immunity applies because it was a governmental function, not that we have to somehow be sitting in the building. I just wanna take you back to the notice of termination that was sent in, in the contract. So I'm looking at page 56 of the contract and it's, it's my understanding that that notice of termination was sent basically under 15 default subsection C notice Am I correct on that? Yes, Your Honor. Okay, um, and it says that uh, in the event of a default in the performance of any obligation, the non-defaulting party shall give the defaulting notice of such default, specifying in reasonable detail the nature of the default, and then shall give them a 45-day period to cure, correct? Yes, Your Honor. So when I read the notice of termination, it just says failure of conditions precedent, and it seems like we're all a little bit foggy on the specific detail. Um, and I don't see anything in here about 45 days to cure. It seems to terminate the contract at that time. Can you tell me about those two things? Yes, Your Honor. Um, first, um, that the, our, our position is that this was the, the notice of suitability was a, a different creature than kind of the rest of the conditions. So the notice of suitability from maybe what I understand is you're saying it was sort of automatic and you didn't have to 
it correct send them something correct your honor that's right. that's the main contention to be honest at this stage um, but that this that this quite literally has nothing to do with anything well that the it, it, on the issues before the court, I would contend um, probably not. not. Um, that the, uh, okay. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And, right. and that the, but to answer the court's question, I think that um, the, if they had cured, for instance, if they had gotten financing within 45 days, I think that would be a compelling argument for the defendant. But again, that's not what happened here. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Can I take your time? <laughs> Briefly, I'll jump onto governmental immunity, Your Honors. Uh, quickly, we do also make the secondary argument that the government was engaging in proprietary, not governmental function. That is contained on our brief, pages 25 to 27. I want to distinguish the Meinke case, uh, Meinke v. City of Gastonia, which the town has heavily relied on. The issue in Meinke was whether the leasing by a city, leasing, not sale, of unused property is generally governmental or proprietary. In that case, the city had determined that one of the key things that they needed was bringing artists into downtown. So they started leasing this unused property to artists, and the city maintained responsibilities for that building, including maintaining the exterior of the premises, the right to inspect it at any time, and the art guild was required to use the space solely for an art gallery, studio, and shop available to the public. In Mike, the city was going to receive 90% of all the rents earned in addition to 15% of the gross receipts. And so unlike in that case, in this case, um, that our town of Forest City was not going to be continuously involved, was not going to receive anything, maintain, etc. This was the sale of private property to a private developer. It was a private contract. The town conceded that the mill was a private investment and project. Mr. Condry, the town manager, said any public benefit or impact would be akin to any other private development of any building. He also said the town was not going to be directing the design documents, merely doing what it does in normal private developments, issuing permits, running inspections, et cetera. And the town was not going to have a shared ownership, no joint venture, that's all unequivocal. So if the town's position were the case, your honors, then nearly any private development in or near a downtown could constitute a governmental activity that allows for governmental immunity. But what about, what about all of this pre-negotiation on this master development agreement and all kinds of conditions that were put on this development that don't seem like they would be put on a, any sale of this property. They were working to develop those, Your Honor, but those terms were not finalized yet. And but so they, they had to be finalized, correct, before correct. this would sell. But so it seems like while there wasn't any, I guess, control afterward, there was lots of control before the closing. There was some, there was negotiations. I would, I would respectfully disagree with the term control, but there were definitely negotiations. I do not want to disagree with that, Your Honor. But again, this is just not similar to what the Mike case says, which is the sole case they rely upon. And again, the town was going to reject any involvement moving forward, and it was going to be rent going to a private developer, and again, just akin to a run-of-the-mill purchase agreement. 
Councillor, um, I, yeah. I have to kind of ask for you to clarify. You said that in this case, the town won't be getting anything, and that's kind of a bright line threshold. Sure. In comparison to a downtown business owner or property owner um, that would potentially be bringing in events and with permitting and other things, I can understand not getting anything if they were outside the city limits because there probably would not be permitting and other residual cash flows available to the town. Get me to where the Gastonia case sets what that threshold is for what is anything and what is nothing because I, I think it's hard for you to argue and, and Judge Collins, I'm fine with giving her more time if you're okay because I'm, I'm being long-winded here. Um, get me to where you can show me that they get nothing as a result of being in a municipality where we all know there's going to be permitting for events and other things because those things are going to be a residual cash flow to the town that they're going to be able to regulate. There's ordinances that they're going to have to comply with. There's violations. There's going to be fines. Get me to where you're showing me facts to where they don't get anything. Sure, and thank you, Your Honor. That is that is a great question in terms of differentiating. When I meant they, they get nothing, I was thinking more in terms of profit back in their pockets directly from the operation. I, I think the municipality would say that taxes and fees and, sure. you know, fines are profits because they're going to use it to keep the coffers going. Counsel. Sure. So. Um, the Mike case discusses this, and I will leave the, Your Honor with this and, and respectfully urge the court um, due to my lack of time to really study the 42 East case as well, which I wanted to talk on, as well as the Mike case, um, the 42 East going to time is of the essence. But the Mike court noted that urban revitalization efforts could seemingly cast a wide net encompassing a number of local government endeavors, mm -hmm. many of which may be more commercial in nature and less geared toward remedying blighted areas and promoting the public interest than defendants in Mike's cooperative enterprise here with the Art Guild. And I, I think that that language somewhat addresses, I hope, Your Honor's question regarding some sort of differentiation between urban revitalization of blighted areas and cooperative enterprises and more commercial activities. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you both for your excellent arguments. We will be in recess for five minutes while we switch over.